Welcome to Radio Imagination. This is an exploration of the life, work, and influence of the author Octavia E. Butler. I write about people and the different ways of being human. And you can't really do that unless you write about a lot of different kinds of people. She was a science fiction writer born in Pasadena, California. I think I had one choice, well, two choices. I could become a writer or I could die really young. I'm Savannah Wood. This year, a decade after Butler's death, a group of artists and writers will explore her archives at the Huntington Library and bring you a series of performances, film screenings, and literary events produced by Clock Shop, an arts organization in Los Angeles. We've been asking writers and artists to consider Butler's work and visit the archive of her papers in Southern California. Among them is the poet Robin Cost Lewis. Here's what she had to say about the experience. It scares the hell out of me. I don't like being in it. I don't like to go. When I go, I get up several, several times and walk around and come back and go, okay, let me try this again. Because she is so palpably there. And it almost feels like, I want to say, I'm not supposed to be here. We asked Robin and three other writers, Fred Moten, Tisa Bryant, and Linnell George, to do something original for Radio Imagination. On a recent Saturday night, we brought them all together to read their work under the stars in the clock shop courtyard. First, here's Julia Meltzer, the director of Clock Shop. We're really thrilled to present Radio Imagination, a year-long program honoring the work of Octavia E. Butler. Yay. This year marks the 10-year anniversary of her all-too-sudden death. And we thought it was about time that um, our city uh, honored her and reflected on the impact of her work and what it's meant to other artists and writers. Um, the title Radio Imagination refers to a quote from Butler. I have the type of imagination that hears. I think of it as radio imagination. Reading Butler's work has been a life-changing experience for so many writers and artists. We created this program to honor an exceptional trailblazer who was a Los Angelino and to track the influence that she's had on next generations of writers, artists, and thinkers. The project took shape because we knew the Huntington Library at Pasadena had the archive of Butler's papers, which were made available to researchers in 2013. The archives are rich, expansive, and deep. And really, I think, I was told by someone at the Huntington that the difference between her archive and other writers is that other writers have a lot of letters between writers and themselves. And I like to think of Octavia Butler's uh, archive as a lot of letters to herself from her. Um, So you really get a perspective of uh, her, her struggle to be a writer, um, this, the day-to-dayness, the day-to-day kind of like toil of creating herself and who she became. Um, and we'll hear a little bit more about that tonight. Finally, we have lost so many important cultural figures this year, the latest being Prince at the young age of 57 this week. The great loss that we all feel speaks to the power of art, music, and literature, and how it shapes our lives and memories and how we move through the world. The work becomes part of us. Octavia Butler died at the young age of 59. We are lucky to have her novels and short stories and her papers at the Huntington. Reinterpreting and revisiting her work and its impact is what radio imagination is all about. 
It's great to welcome you here to this program. And now I'm going to ask Savannah Wood to come up and introduce the writers. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here tonight. I just want to let everyone know that tonight's program will be recorded. Um, we're actually launching a podcast that will be called Radio Imagination. We'll feature um, events like this one that we're recording this evening. It'll also have interviews and a few other things. Um, so that will be available on the iTunes store. Right now we have a little teaser up so you can search for it under either Clock Shop or Radio Imagination today and subscribe to it. Um, what else should I say for you? Um, we'll hear from Linnell George first. So Linnell is currently an arts and culture columnist, KCET's Artbound. She was previously a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times, the LA Weekly. George's writing has appeared in Boom, Slake, Vibe, Washington Post, Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, Essence, among others. And she's the author of No Crystal Stare, African Americans in the City of Angels, which we have here tonight. Without further ado, Linnell. Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm so honored to be a part of this celebration. Um, I can't tell you. And I, I think when I said yes to it, I didn't realize how much this was going to matter to me and how much I will probably miss it when it's over, so I don't want to even think about it being over. Um, I want to send a big thank you out to Julia Meltzer for <laughs> conceiving this, saying, come have coffee with me. I want to talk to you about some idea I have. And uh, it's really just deepened my life in so many ways. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about the piece that I'm gonna get re getting ready to read because um, it speaks for itself. But um, I was always hoping to be able to get to interview Octavia Butler. In fact, I was close to her several times here in L.A. I went to Seattle and heard her speak and... We talked, and, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to happen, you know, and we knew it was going to happen. Well, it didn't happen. So this piece is dedicated to her, and this is the way that we were going to make it happen. So. Okay. Free and clear. Lush, lush, an introduction. How long do you wait for a presence? Not a ghost, but a feeling. I'm often chasing after people in motion, interview subjects between destinations, physical or creative. This journey, however, was an entirely different enterprise. My subject wasn't traveling across town or the country or leaping over vast bodies of water, but arriving from someplace yet to be understood. While deadlines nipped at my heels, time for Octavia E. Butler, I knew, was porous. I would wait as long as it took, I supposed. So I sit, idling on a narrow, lush, tree-canopied avenue in North Pasadena, waiting for something I can't quite name. The curb in front of a quaint California bungalow, one of her early residences, is stained a fading red, so faint that I pretend that I don't see it. Perhaps, I realize, it's painted so on purpose, maybe to discourage looky-loos like me, fandom types, from descending, lurking. Evidence spread out before me, however, this afternoon suggests otherwise, 
There's a wraparound porch with an elegant, if fading, Queen Anne chair perched in a corner. The heavy wooden front door sits wide open, as if to catch a breeze. Fuel imagination. This sweltering, dry, late summer weather in winter, just as the writer had predicted. Many months ago, when I was first asked to take part of this venture and to create a posthumous interview, I was 100% up to the challenge. But hours in the archive at the Huntington didn't, didn't so much alter my resolve, but deepen my aspirations. Octavia E. Butler, dreamer, fighter, genius, muse, took utmost care to chronicle every corner of her against-all-odds life, perhaps because she worried that no one would get it right or could assemble it better than she might. The large plot points, but more importantly, the nuances. A few weeks into my visit at the Huntington Library, my Fridays with Octavia as I began to honor them, as I poured over shopping lists, marginalia, budgets, recipes, math calculations, story drafts, lectures, and memo book manifestos, it became clear that this voice would tell her own story, that this voice would lead me where she wanted me to go, not the other way around. I realized there would be no need for fancy contrivances, creating scenes and placing her awkwardly into them. In other words, that porch would stay empty. The challenge instead would be much like organizing hours and hours of transcription, a Q&A that must do the double duty of conveying the very best moments of a conversation, but also create some sort of narrative structure, linear usually, yes, but this would not necessarily be accurate, I realized, nor just. As she began to materialize, I understood that my duty was to convey the fluidness and musicality of her mind at work. What I saw in those papers was the life of the mind, a chart of a life force, not simply the multiple revisions of manuscript pages or drafts of speeches, but margin fragments and post-its and shopping lists, the busy whirring of a brain, pausing to free associate. Those intersecting thoughts, pivots, switchbacks, digressions taken together told a story too. It was a starkly revealing backstage look on a writer's life. This piece is but a snapshot. It's a a kitchen table chat full of life's interruptions, a sampling of those questions, answers, images, tangents, lists, wishes, griefs, and a tapestry of a working writer's complicated life. The questions here are her own, except where noted. Those few places where I interject to insert a nudge or request a clarification. She left us with a clear sense of what it means to turn yourself over to your calling. Becoming a writer for her meant just that. The very act of putting words on the page assured that she would be. In so doing, she became both the ritual and the words. Putting the contents of those letters, journals, affirmations, and eventually the stories and novels onto the page, she was also writing herself out of the margins, into a world of her design, page by page, draft by draft. So here is the Q&A, or part of it. Sense of place. The black sharp line of mountains against the pre-dawn sky, the bumps of trees, the lights of communication towers, the bony clear silhouettes of same. I've never felt as though I were making any of this up. Question, Octavia? Answer, you mean that tall girl who is always writing? 
question, who is Octavia Butler? Where is she headed? Where has she been? Please use my middle initial. Who is Octavia E. Butler? Who am I? I'm a 41-year-old writer who can remember. I am a 43-year-old writer who can remember being. I am a 46-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old. I am a 48-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer. I am a 50-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer and who expects. I am a 52-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer and who expects someday to be an 80-year-old writer. I am also comfortably asocial, a hermit in the middle of Los Angeles, a pessimist. If I am not careful, a feminist, a black, a former Baptist, an oil and water combination of ambition, laziness, insecurity, certainty, and drive. Revisions. Who is Octavia Butler? Where do you want to go in your career and your personal life in the next five years? Who am I? I'm a 39-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer and who looks forward to being a 70-year-old writer eventually. I'm also comfortably asocial, a hermit in the middle of Los Angeles, a pessimist if I'm not careful, a feminist, always a black, a quiet egoist, a former Baptist, an oil-and-water combination of ambition, laziness, insecurity, certainty, and drive. Within the next five years, I'll become a better, more careful writer. I'm always striving to improve my craft, and I, and I certainly intend to be a richer writer. I've already had the experience of being a poor one who literally didn't know where her next meal was coming from. It was a valuable experience in retrospect, but one I wouldn't want to repeat. Fortunately, I don't seem to be any, in any danger of repeating. There was a time that I didn't know what to say to people who asked what I wanted to be when I grew up. I had begun writing without knowing it was something people did for a living. But by the time I had been writing for a couple of years, I had found out, and I knew, I wanted to be a writer. None of this was easy, getting here, that is, was it? Writers must be among the very few people who can use to their creative advantage the negative emotions of personal depression. My story crossover, the product of such a depression, is a work born of despair and loneliness. It investigates the lengths to which one might go to find relief. Flashback and inventory. Question. What does it take to be a writer? Close up. Answer. You have radio, television, tape recorder, record player, iron and board, clock, lamps, one floor, table, straightening comb, two chairs, one single bed, two dressers, high boy in pink, two chairs, four bookcases, typewriter, two suitcases, dirty clothes hamper, accordion. You need two plates and a pan or two, two bowls, two or three glasses, two cups, bare necessities, two forks, two spoons, 
two knives, small one, big and sharp, a cooking fork and spoon, a can opener, one refrigerator, two rolls of toilet paper, one apartment stove, one table, kitchen, one frying pan. Question, are you happy? Was there a time when you were not happy with your life? I'm happy. When I was 17 and finally breaking away from my mother's religion, I was miserable and scared and without purpose. I supposed most adolescents go through similar misery whether they change their religion or not. I've put it very simply, but it wasn't a simple time. During my mid-20s, I was miserable when I had to work at grubby jobs, when my writing didn't sell. I was miserable when a relative said, why don't you try something else? And misery hit an odd peak when I found myself crying over a smashed jar of Skippy's peanut butter. One week when I couldn't find work and had only peanut butter, bread, beans, rice, a pound of ground beef to eat for the week. Strange time. Once while I was doing warehouse work, I saw a Mexican man running for a bus, swinging a paper bag. Suddenly, a jar of cooked beans fell through the bottom of the bag and smashed. The man stopped and stared at the smashed jar for a moment, and I saw the odd, stricken look on his face. So familiar. Shopping list. Pepper, onions, tomatoes, envelopes, taco sauce, nacho sauce canned beans, tortilla, cheese. Question. You live simply. Would sudden financial success make you change your lifestyle? Do you believe that fame and fortune might adversely affect your writing? I suspect I could learn to cope with fame and fortune fairly well. I certainly intend to find out. White noise, imagination, journal, my dream house. January 23rd, 1969. My house is very Spanish. The roof tiled with red Spanish tile. The court patio yard walled off since the house forms only three quarters of a circle. It is white and stucco and looks much like this Casa de Adobe at the Southwest Museum. When I was seven years old, I loved the casa. Here I have found a counterpart of it, my dream house, that I would like to live in. I would like three bedrooms, living room, dining room, kitchen, den, located so that it can be used as an office, two-car garage, part of which it can be used as a workroom. It will have central heating and air conditioning. The patio will be brick, <laughs> as will the walkway from the street. Inspirations? Answer. My mother, my grandmother. Question. How did you become a writer? Quick, quick. I got hooked. Well, my mother believed everyone would do one thing better than they could do and everything else. I was born in Pasadena, California in 1947. And except for some scattered months of living in the desert just outside of Victorville, I lived in Pasadena until 1970. I had been making up stories and telling them to myself since I was about five or six because my mother, in an effort to make me read, stopped reading them to me. I did read. Everything from my grandmother's California farmer to large numbers of library books to pornography from someone's trash. But since I never found the kinds of stories I really wanted to read, I made up my own. 
When I was 10, I discovered that I had forgotten some of my earlier stories. I decided then to write down the ones I remembered and the new ones. I was always an omnivorous reader. I was always full of questions that I was too shy to ask my teachers at school. I find that my creativity springs from confusion and forgetfulness, as well as from my reading, listening, watching, and feeling whatever catches my attention. My mind is a jumble of half-remembered facts, opinions, and sensation. These join together or break against one another in unexpected ways. Now and then, igniting passionate interest, I follow my interests wherever they lead, questioning and learning as I go. Writing has given me the freedom to do this. It has enabled me to earn a living, exploring the many things that fascinate me. Why science fiction, fantasy? I began writing fantasy and science fiction because both inspire a high level of creativity and freedom. I remember being disappointed, however, when I realized how little of this creativity and freedom was used to portray the many human variations, racial, sexual, ethnic, class, etc. Fortunately, this has been changing over the past few years. I intend my writing to, to contribute to the change Question, you say the work pleads for acceptance of differences. It should. While growing up, I was the perennial out kid. I was too tall. Finally stopped at six feet. I wasn't permitted to dance or later to wear makeup. I was an only child who never quite learned to be a kid, though I was comfortable with older people. In groups of more than two or three, I was tiresomely shy, unable even to speak up coherently enough to defend myself. In short, I was a different kid. They always laughed at me because I could never conform, yet they always have been a little wary. They suspected that in spite of my difference, I was both strong physically and intelligent. They never feared me, but... They are wary. Respect. Thank you. Thank you, Linnell. Next, we're going to hear from Tisa Bryant. Tisa is the author of Unexplained Presence, which was out um, in 2007 from Leon Works. Her work has appeared in Mandela and in Letters to the Future, an anthology of experimental writing by black women, among others. She's currently working on a novel called The Curator. Bryant teaches in the MFA Creative Writing Program at the California Institute of the Arts. It's great to be here. I never in a million years thought I would be involved um, in such a project and get to be this close to Octavia Butler's life and thinking and work. So especially at a time when I really needed everything that I encountered in her archives. So um, I'm going to read this piece, which is um, really only the arc of it. It's not the whole of it. Um, So um, I think you should know that. Hand of the Teacher... Imaginary friends, what a child conjures to keep themselves company, populating and creating an entire world of ritual, hierarchy, dynamics of love and power. 
a horse whose only wish is to be transformed into a lady, a warp zone fairy godmother who finds children with telepathic powers and nurtures and protects them. Octavia Butler's mind from childhood was just this place of conjure. She drew pictures accompanied by tiny capsule stories that zeroed in on the goal of her characters. She shaped them with precise economy, desires, flaws, obstacles, always in service of action, action frequently occurring on a stage or landscape of place and mind where they learned to develop, use, and abuse power. As someone who graduated high school at the bottom of her class, who worked instead of going to college, who lived in libraries and bookstores, I was and am fascinated by Octavia Butler's formulation of a self. While world-building for her science fiction, she surreptitiously created a world of possibility for herself, treating herself as she would her characters, setting goals, identifying obstacles, taking action, assessing outcomes before the next venture. How far did she take this approach in her life? What kind of alternative universe was her psyche in regard to her autodidactic nature, utopically curated or as dystopic and complex as her novels? I recalled Butler in an interview intimating at the negative impact of teachers, especially English teachers, on her work and wanted to know more. I knew that famed sci-fi writer Harlan Ellison had been a teacher and mentor to her, but what kind? And how did she respond to him, his input? How did he or anyone else help her to shape her vision and fuel her propulsion of self and work into the world? I went to the Huntington Library to research the Octavia Butler papers with this in mind. In the finding aid for the collection, I came across a number of manuscript items, papers submitted for school assignments, drafts of stories, described as being marked with the hand of a teacher. So I culled all the items marked with this descriptor as a way to begin understanding her relationships to those who would guide her. I quickly found myself compelled to revise the article a in hand of a teacher to hand of the teacher, as it became apparent that one guiding force in particular rose above them all. One of my teachers told my mother I couldn't learn very well because I was colored. This was around 1958. My mother came home angry and urged me to be somebody. Again, I didn't know what she was talking about. Octavia Butler's mother's anger against the authority who would mark her child, the authority earned through illegitimate means, legitimized and enabled by racism and sexism. How to talk back to that? Be somebody. This, along with concerns instigated by an aunt that she was backward, baffled young Octavia. For, after all, one has to be taught that one is a problem. She described being screamed at by her mother and teachers and doing just well enough in school to bracket their judgments and quell her mother's fears, but she didn't really care about school. But she did care about study and the life of her mind, the enduring power of her memory, her earliest stories, the strength of her personal characters, the strength of her personal character, lest anything fade, lest any part of her that she valued got lost, obliterated. She says... I began dreaming up the future world of my first novel, Pattern Master, when I was about 12. It was constructed of my fascination with parapsychology, a Girl Scout trip 
camping in Yosemite, a budding interest in the opposite sex, and a lifetime of daydreaming. I used to retreat to this world whenever school was boring or I was feeling lonely. As a matter of fact, the main complaint my mother used to get from my teachers was about my daydreaming. Teachers said I didn't pay enough attention, that I seemed to be in another world. They had no idea how right they were. <laughs> Butler would later write about failure conditioning in her story Child Finder, but she knew from an early age what she was up against before she could name it. Her fascination with parapsychology is especially moving as 1970s science and popular popular culture positioned telekinesis, clairvoyance, and multiple personalities as the domain of women and young girls, interior wildness as a secret weapon, telekinesis to control objects and not be one. At 11, I absorbed young adult novels, movies, and TV shows on the paranormal like a sponge, imagining my psychic powers, waiting silently for that sister from the warp zone to come looking for me and help me to train my latent abilities. At the same time, nearly 20 years older than me and 3,000 miles away, Octavia Butler not only understood what the need for mentoring, but was in the midst of dramatizing her views and experience in sci-fi from Child Finder and beyond. In the essay Self-Construction, Butler recounts how she found substitute fathers in self-help books written by very successful self-made white men like Dale Carnegie, Napoleon Hill, J. Lowell Henderson, David Schwartz, Claude Bristol, William E. Edwards, and David Seabury. Inspired by Napoleon Hill, Butler formed her own mastermind support network comprised of people she had never and would never meet, some writing well before she was born, none of whom had ever anticipated a 14-year-old black girl seeking their guidance. Butler copied down quotes from Napoleon Hill such as, whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe, it can achieve editing the line in her typical feminist fashion to read whatever the human mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. Of her mastermind, she said, they gave me the framework upon which to construct the person I wanted to become. In fact, they helped me to understand that there was construction to be done, that whatever I became, I would be my own creation. The stern, direct words from these men gave her the tools she that she needed to withstand her lived experience, the lack of confidence or understanding in her to be found there. Through her writing, she devised a way to exit that world of negative voices and enter into one of her own making, in which she was a star character, ever striving for success, literally guided by voices from beyond. What also strikes me about her mastermind network of substitute fathers is that they're not tailored directly for a black woman, and she doesn't care. She doesn't need to see herself reflected in the writings and guidance of these men. She doesn't need to hear a voice like hers, see a situation like hers, and she doesn't reject them for their sexism, their corniness, their conservative right-wing views, or the racism they were likely mired in. She recognizes it all then takes what she needs. All she needs is to see goals and desires like hers, creativity and self-suggestion to help her get what she wants. She needed the tools, not the identification. 
This discernment sharpened Butler's critique and ability to identify help from harm, to take help and move on. To lay the foundation, Butler devised a way to guide herself through the books she found in the dusty, underutilized sections of the Los Angeles Public Library. She began writing herself in, one goal and desire at a time. It's through her words that she makes new realities manifest, and she clearly believes in her powers, despite or perhaps because of the goad of ever-present self-doubt. Here, too, reading her makes me understand Octavia Butler as a congregation of one before a preacher, the two being one and the same, the teacher, Butler herself. While her writings to herself are not biblical per se, they take on the Bible tone of the indispensable how-to books that Butler read, as well as how closely she studied the works of her predecessors and peers in sci-fi, and she really studied this work. She knew her peers and her, her contemporaries and everybody before her in sci-fi inside out and could cite chapter and verse about it, and it's actually quite astounding. Like these maxims and exhortations inspired by Isaac Asimov, the less you demand of yourself, the less you will give. If the strongest force in your life is inertia, you are a failure. Bad early training need not be a lifelong affliction. I've already proven that before audiences, on planes, amid crowds. I am not dead, therefore I continue to grow intellectually, to learn, to experience, to change myself into the new, to the changes, and to the challenges. Octavia Butler guides, instructs, fortifies, and challenges herself daily, and once her public presence and reputation as a writer of sci-fi is established, she shares this wisdom with others. There are numerous examples of how she taught herself, abounding throughout the work of the artists in the Radio Imagination Project and on the walls in the other room. And they're incredible, sometimes devastating to contemplate. And here I want us to also contemplate the extraordinary energy it takes to play all these roles for yourself in your own life, what it means to for the body and the spirit, as well as the mind, to be your own teacher, editor, guidance counselor, cheerleader, preacher, and friend. Octavia Butler carried, pushed, cajoled, prodded herself through decades of being the only black published woman sci-fi writer with rigor, discipline, and attention to improvement. She was her own child finder, her own fairy godmother from the warp zone. The gift she gave to herself, to her work, and to us speaks volume volumes, but we should never move our mind from considering the cost. Thank you. Wow. Next, we're going to hear from Fred Moten. Fred Moten is the author of six books, his current projects include Consent Not to Be a Single Being, Essays 2002 to 2015, which is forthcoming from Duke University Press, and a new collection of poems called The Service Porch, which is forthcoming from Letter Machine Editions. Moten lives in Los Angeles and teaches at the University of California, Riverside. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here and to be involved in, um, in this project. 
what I've written here today is, I think, more of a poem than it is criticism, but I'm not sure. Um, one of the things that I was trying really hard not to do is, um, I mean, I'm, I'm an inveterate mama's boy, and I still look at everything through my mother's eyes. And one of the things that I noticed um, immediately looking at Octavia Butler's notebooks and commonplace books was that she had this habit, which I discovered that my mom had after she passed away. And I was going through her sort of computer files, and she was constantly the the person who I thought of as the most absolutely confident person in the world was constantly writing notes to herself. I realized later on in life how much she had to work to to do the things that she had to do. And, and, and in a way, I think I've spent as much time trying to make sure that I didn't just fold Octavia Butler into my mom as possible. So who knows, that might still leak into this at some point. But here's what I have right, right now. Um, it's called a commonplace flaw. And, and my eyes are problematic too, so if you don't see my face, it's because I'm looking really hard trying to see what I got. There's an epigraph. The black radical tradition is after capitalism as well as before and during in multiple modalities, always. Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis trilogy is all about this, I think. Using the scariest life substance, cancer, to reflect on expansive, constantly changing sociality. And that was written by Ruth Wilson Gilmore. What's a commonplace book? One of yours is blue. A blue spiral with a little yellow, a little yellow with a sign, and a .79. The flaw that would have made me scrape the price tag off is something you don't have. Because your openness to flaw is perfect, you can stay at impurity. I came a long way to find love for the human taste. You walked away from freedom so you could find a ceremony. You never settled. You keep finding passages of hasn't happened yet by dreaming through what has. You never stop making the book of the commonplace. It's a theme of general application, a salad of many herbs whose scheme is addended to an essay concerning human understanding. The novel is an essay concerning human understanding when you hear the commonplace. Hume ripped and folded in the open house Home is impossible when you grew some church in broken hume. It's already open, so I can't open it. Why pretend interior to access? Why look for secrets when all we need is a margin we can build stuff in and out of? Even if the chromosome is arbitrary, there might be true devotion in the fingerprint. Can I caress a thought up in your notebook? Touch a whisper your collective head? Let me make it chromatic. You teach me how to want to taste. You make me think there's a gene, a gene for the general strike. Your research in seizure is a recess of seed. If we stop, can we grow? I'm still a child who loves fun and play. An adolescent, 
idealistic and unrealistic, an adult, pragmatic, bitter, and frightened, some ash, flung, spent, and critical, some waving, permanent, and gone. I'm still a feel who loves fun and play, something quiet, intense, utterly real, even when and where it's weird, her F's all curved like E's, a human wandering, a terraformed Mars, terraformed, wishing not to be forgotten. Photocopy all postcards, radio all photography, intelligence and compassion all phonography. Perhaps there is a mission school wherein natives are kept from doing what comes naturally. We naturally make some in some broken skin. We came to read a suit made out of them. A spider mother submits to being eaten by her young. My kids eat your kids. This generation, I eat you. Next generation, you eat me. Fitness determined by who consumes who. Mating is a true struggle with two beings striving to conceive one another, to consume one another. They are biologically the same. But when one kills and consumes the other, the consumed one acts as male and fertilizes the reproductive cells of the consumer. I mean, you know, we need to grow some flowers through their hearts. They await the ecstasy of being eaten. Flow on flaw is stereo, and I yearn for sisters. But brotherly love is existential theft, an ethics of gardening when it's way past that like a truck full of cousins and cushions, or a bathhouse on the run, or a ship in dry rub. But you still hold out a platform for massage and tune. There's so much life and death, and all this generative gong, that you just left a table full of planets, a lot of them blue with stations and yellow changes. Antigone claims unintelligibility by resisting the imposition of unintelligibility. Lilith broods her brood, her flaw, an anhygienic relay. If you could ever be alone, it would be like every time I say everybody, when I sound the same because I'm assuming everybody. But you sound different. And what it is to veer by way of choir and bend and liquefy the angle's rectitude, to tweak or twerk or torque or torque like making do, to make Norma stop and grow like Cora, your substance is substitution. There's a messed up warmth beneath stance, an infinitely purple twirl of ground, the enemy within and below in caress, but it's just some presidents. But as you know, your thing's unprecedented, raised, urged, ingestion effect, revolutionary gestation, evolutionary indigestion, some blush or bruise or brush or blur, some blue, a little yellow, rhythmed, like the said to never turn that turns the dial. Oh, when I wake up in the morning, the very first thing that I do, I turn on my radio and I listen to Y-O-U. What can it be to breathe and breed these stories?
The last writer that we'll hear from tonight is Robin Cost-Lewis. Robin is the 2015 National Book Award winner in poetry for her work, Voyage of the Sable Venus, out from Knopf last year. She's a provost fellow at the University of Southern California, a Cave Canem fellow. She was a finalist for the National Rita Dove Prize in 2004. Lewis has been awarded residencies and fellowships by the Caldera Foundation, Ragdale Foundation, Headland Center for the Arts, Conserat International Art Center in Barcelona, and the Summer Literary Seminars in Kenya. Everybody welcome Robin Lewis. Thank you. Um, the piece I'm going to read uh, is called Fall in Love, Why Not? You're Already Miserable. <laughs> Black genius, loneliness, and an ocean named peace. The Fall in Love, Why Not? You're Already Miserable is uh, taken from one of Octavia's notebooks. She, there's a note that is written in there, and I'm going to read about what I think that might be or might not be or what it means for me. Um, before I start, though, I want to say I'm really honored to be here with you, Linnell, reading with you, and you, Tisa, and you, Fred. I'm really, really honored to share the stage with such amazing writers. Okay. In every photograph, when she stares so calmly into the aperture, into the future, it's not her face, but her house that I see. The small frame of it on a quiet street in Pasadena, that cottage just floating there, filling, filling with new modes of time, new frames, new portals to both the interior and space, new mammals even, plus a profound intimacy with the galaxies. Her house contains space, the future, the past, time bending back and forth, did she often sit in the middle of the night watching time's blue line hover in her bedroom? Did she spin the planets like a basketball on the tip of her finger? The archive shows her at work with her mind, asking, challenging, demanding, what is this life? What is that, this place? What are the limits of the body? Even is biology only the beginning? The archive contains numerous photographs, but one image that truly stopped me in my archival tracks was somewhat banal. I say somewhat because it was a group portrait of some of the most prolific black women writers of her time, all standing together, people like Toni K. Bambara, June Jordan, you name it, these black womanist uh, figures, literary figures, and Octavia on the end, leaning in. There she was, the eighth. Octavia of the ocean, Octavia the eighth, Octavia of the blue, blue rim. Of all the exceptionally talented writers in the photograph, she was the only one from California, the only one from Los Angeles, the only one who wrote science fiction, the only one who regularly situated her stories in the West, the only one. In his essay, The Creative Process, James Baldwin says, quote, perhaps the primary distinction of the artist is that he must actively cultivate that state which most men necessarily must avoid, the state of being alone. Or as Octavia put it in a notebook, get a dog. <laughs> a dog will love you forever, even though you can't write worth a damn. What does it mean to be singular, like Octavia, to be a genius, an innovator, to be the only one like you alive on the planet 
at all. What does it mean? It means you are cherished by strangers. It means your writing keeps teenagers from jumping off of ledges or eating the whole bottle of their parents' Valium. It means astrophysicists and scientists consult your work for wider, broader, vaster notions of the universe, ideas they are too indoctrinated to imagine. It means people approach you in tears but rarely know you. Perhaps it might mean being unknowable some way, the way we all are unknowable except more and historically pronounced. Tiptoe into a page, into a sentence, look into her big brown eyes staring back at you from the flat surface of this photograph. Those eyes that say almost consistently, indeed, in every photograph, you have no idea. It's easy to love her, easy even to worship her, easy to idealize a persona above the contribution. She was a genius. It's as simple and complicated as that she was. But the astonishing gift of the archive she left us, and she did leave it to us intentionally as a gift, the astonishing gift of the archive she left us is that she allows us to see her simply as a human being. And so while I am fascinated like anyone who reads Butler by her ability to stand up virtually alone within the tight, limited frame of her history, I'm equally intrigued by her ideological solitude. Her unique position in literary history is her innovation. But I wonder about her aloneness in that little greenhouse on the Pacific Rim. Fall in love, why not? You're already miserable, she wrote in her notebook that day. To whom was she writing? Was this a note to herself, to a friend, to that part of ourselves that are our best friend, or as Toni Morrison said, our best part? Was it a private statement she was sending off on a boat with a candle to sell down into her mind, into her unconscious? Who might be so brave as to attempt to kiss a woman whose mind was inhabited by shape-shifting pregnant men and women who lived for centuries? Of course, I am projecting, I know. All art All art is projection, after all. I know what we see when we look are mostly ourselves or who we hope to be. But the art looks back at us, too. And so if Butler's work looked back at us through a lens of pure solitude, what might it say, I wonder? My project, then, with the Octavia Butler Archive at the Huntington is a meditation on black genius and aloneness and location. I'm intrigued by the relationship between her solitude and her creativity and her home in Pasadena. Pasadena. I combed her photographic archive to see what portraits of her might tell us, if anything, in terms of geographical origins. They told me a great deal. They reminded me again and again that Butler did not live in New York or New England, but rather she stayed in a house in the suburbs of Los Angeles. She stayed there and stayed there and stayed there. And so I then begin to think about her work, how her books are regularly populated with solitary females who can outsee everyone around them. Solitude, aloneness, they are the bed for female imagination in Butler's work. And it is usually their aloneness, the solitude, that allows for, if not creates, their precocity, their shimmering gift of perception. 
And so the more research I did, the more fascinated I became with how place influenced Butler's imagination. And the majority of photographic portraits of writers taken at conferences, etc., Octavia is often the only artist from the West Coast, or the only woman, or the only African-American, or the only science fiction writer, etc., I know, I know, I'm supposed to be interested in the subjects of that sentence, right? Woman, African-American, California, science fiction writer, etc. But I'm infinitely more interested, or at least equally interested, in the recurring onlys in that sentence. Only woman, only African-American, only science fiction writer, or the only woman from the West Coast. Ultimately, I keep returning to the questions. questions. Was it her singularity? her intense black Pacific Rim solitude, one of the major contributing factors that allow her to live on the frontier of human imagination. To this end tonight, I'm going to read some erasure poems I created from her exceptional novel, Parable of the Sower, a novel where one of her most memorable and prescient protagonists, Lauren, is a solitary teenage writer, a teenage writer who is in the midst of an apocalyptic future set again in Southern California and creates a new radical theological frame. My project, Fall in Love, Why Not? You're Already Miserable, erases each page of the novel to reveal a new text or a buried text, a series of poems that meditate on solitude, desire, and intelligence. How many of you guys know what poetic erasures are? Okay, so I'm going to explain just quickly what they are. You take what we call a source text, and in this case, I took the parable of the sower, and I took a page, and then I erased some words, or most words, and left a few words to create poems from those pages that sometimes do, but mostly do not have any, you can't recognize parable of the sower, oops, excuse me, in, in that work, and that's true with erasures, usually a new text emerges. So I erased parable of the sower. Um, let's see. Uh, a series of poems that meditate on solitude, desire, and intelligence, poems I created from Butler's words to examine what subtle interior monologues might also be present within Butler's female protagonists. In creating these poems, I hoped to magnify the roles of this marriage between solitude and intellectual endeavor and the roles that these two things play in her novels. Thus far, I've completed about 100 poems, but tonight I'll be reading just a few. The only rules I set for myself were these. I would try to attend to those moments in Parable of the Sower where Butler engages in existential discussions about solitude, Um, And two, that I would erase one page at a time, that is one poem per page. And three, that I would not reorder her writing in, in any way. So when you hear these poems, this is the order that the words appear on the page. So here are a few poems from from the series, Fall in Love, Why Not? You're Already Miserable. The wall before me is burning, ordinary and real. Darkness brightening, an armload of constellations the stars, a book that belonged to my father, to see another, to hide the stars. Two, God, stop being a coward. So nervous from being destroyed, be a woman, naked and filthy, be a neighborhood wall, the hills, unmortared rocks, half-naked children wide awake and watching us. Three, victim of adaptation, partner of forethought, shaper of the living. The plan worked. 
those without edges of fire started flying embers. Unoccupied now, love older than years, attention useless. There was no wall back then. I tried falling apart. I've had to learn to do that every now and then. To give in to magic, to share the pain or the pleasure of other people. I admit that. Four, I decided to go on telling the truth for as long as I could, like ignoring the fire in the living room because we're all in the kitchen. A surge of shifting subject. Sometimes the way to move is from several directions. Five. And then, of course, God says she was sorry. I watched her leave tall and straight and serious and intelligent. I still feel inclined to her. Her words, she was my best friend. My garden, citrus tree, the process what was left of spring. Six. Find someone to protect you before dark to just after dawn. Seven. But at least, Mrs. Lincoln, the thieves were alone. Should we lie in our bed and let them take us all? How long does a thief stay content? Next time, it might be you. Change, 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 change. The verses, the rotting past, push them into a future that makes sense. Salable, careful, essential, insane. Good night. God had not come home and has not been found. Everyone waits pregnant, unmarried, and so public. I've tried to leave it unnamed, the back garden, thousands of miles from any human. Somehow I think there will be the real, the true, the truest thing, mysterious and obvious as any other. And then I'm going to close with something that Linnell introduced in the back of um, Parable of the Sower. This is just direct lift of her text. This is not me making poems from her words. This is just all her. Um, This is how she wrote her bio about the author. I am a 46-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer and who expects someday to be an 80-year-old writer. I'm also comfortably a social, a hermit in the middle of Los Angeles, a pessimist if I'm not careful, a feminist, a black, a former Baptist, an oil and water combination of ambition, laziness, certainty, and drive. Thank you. Radio Imagination is an exploration of the life, work, and influence of Octavia E. Butler. It's all being produced by Clock Shop. We're a nonprofit organization that works at the intersection of culture, politics, and urban space in Los Angeles. On the next podcast, I'll interview one of the people who knew Octavia Butler as an author almost better than anyone. Marilee Heifetz was her agent and is now the literary executor of her estate. 
at clockshop.org, you can see the full list of our live events around Los Angeles and videos of Octavia Butler and the people who knew her. You can also sign up for an email newsletter and get more updates on the project. I'm Savannah Wood. Thanks for listening.